Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Ray Bradbury was a legend in the science fiction world and in the literary world. He passed away on June 5th, 2012. The author of several important works, including Martian Chronicles, Fahrenheit 451, Something Wicked This Way Comes, poet, screenplay writer. On February 7th, 1992, Richard A. Lupoff and I interviewed Ray Bradbury at his home in Los Angeles. His book, A Graveyard for Lunatics, had recently been published, and in the interview, he talks about the origins of that book and about a lot of his work in Hollywood. Do you remember the very first science fiction or fantasy story you ever read? Oh, I think it was around 1928 in Amazing Stories or Wonder Stories. The World of the Giant Ants, I think it was called, by A. Hyatt Verrill. Now, there's that name. Boy, I mean, that's an author's name. It has status and class to it. And it had illustrations by uh, Frank R. Paul who did all the covers and interior illustrations of the Wonder Stories in those days. I couldn't afford the magazine. It came into the house of my grandmother's boarding house with one of the boarders, and it cost 25 cents. Who had 25 cents in 1928? But it was instant love, and I still have that copy put away somewhere in the basement. What was the very first attempt you tried at writing a story of that sort? Do you remember it all? Yeah, I I wrote the sequel to The Gods of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Uh, I was 12 years old, and I couldn't afford to buy any of his books. Twice a year I got one of his books for Christmas and my birthday, and they were 75 cents apiece. And my family had been on, you know, out of work. My dad was out of work for years, and we traveled to Arizona, and then we finally came to L.A., but uh, we had no money, so I wrote the sequel instead of buying it. Did you try to sell it? Oh, no, my God. <laughs> That's lost. But a lot of other stuff I did when I was 12 is still around. It's all lousy. And everything I wrote for 10 years, I wrote every day of my life. In high school, I went without lunch in order to go to the typing room. I had a deal with a teacher. She let me sit in the empty typing room and use one of the typewriters and write my terrible stories. I didn't have a typewriter until my last year in high school. I bought one for about uh, 12 bucks, as I recall. It took me 12 weeks to pay it off, a dollar a week. So everything before that was done on a toy dial typewriter, one of those things where it takes half an hour to do six words, huh? So all that early stuff, though, and everything in high school, I've got a lot of the high school stories put away, and, and they're dreadful, dreadful. Someone asked me, the other night, and it's been asked many times, how did you keep going in the midst of being so bad? I said, well, if you're in love, you don't notice how bad you are. It's like your first love affair. You're in love with her. You get over thinking about you because if she thinks you're okay, you must be, huh? 
So it is with writing short stories. You you love the field and you hyperventilate about it all the time. It seems as if two of your major early influences were Lovecraft and Burroughs. Is that correct? Not Lovecraft. No, he was too fancy. But Poe, Edgar Allan Poe was, when I was eight years old, my crazy aunt, I call her. She lives out in San Fernando still, and she's 82, and she's wonderful. But she introduced me to uh, Alice in Wonderland and Oz, all the Oz books, and my first book of fairy tales when I was five, which I still have. But she had a wonderful copy of Edgar Allan Poe, illustrated by Harry Clark, which is one of the classic editions. And I poured through that again and again when I was eight, nine, and ten. Now, the style was too fancy, and when I began to write, I tried to imitate that, you know, exuberant, fancy, rococo, Mandarin style. But that would have been fatal to my life. You know, you couldn't sell anything like that. Lovecraft got away with it during that period, and he was very rococo. And uh, I enjoyed a lot of his things, but I had enough sense to know that he, like Henry James, would be a danger. Uh, they they talk too much. In the same era, I believe you had a an encounter with Blackstone the Magician. Would you talk about that a little bit? Oh, well, I collected a whole bunch of loves starting when I was three. I fell in love with Lon Chaney and The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Phantom of the Opera when I was six, Dinosaurs when I was five, The Lost World, MGM. And then when I was seven or eight, Blackstone came to visit my town. And he'd been on the stage by that time, 27, 28 years. He was getting to be an old man, huh? But I saw this poster on the side of the Academy Theater in Waukegan and had Blackstone doing all of his illusions and the dancing handkerchief and vanishing an elephant and what have you. And I thought, my God, that's for me. So I went down to the theater and when he asked for volunteers, I was up on the stage like a shot. And he gave me a rabbit, which I took home and immediately turned into six more rabbits. I made up my mind then to become a magician and had magic tricks given to me every Christmas. I still have some of them. And I performed at our American Legion and Oddfellow, you know, gatherings. Uh, I was lousy. I was never any good at it. But I had a lot of fun. And I'm sure that influenced uh, a lot of my writing, how to, how to make people believe things that can't be believed. And that's really my art, isn't it? I can make you believe there's an atmosphere on Mars, huh? Ray Bradbury, you moved to Los Angeles and shortly thereafter became friends with Ray Harryhausen? I joined the Los Angeles Science Fantasy Society when I was 17. Uh, Forrest Ackerman was my first editor. And I illustrated and wrote for that magazine, Imagination. And then he put up money to finance my own magazine, Futuria Fantasia. And I had people like Heinlein and Kuttner writing for me, which was terrific. And along the way, in late 1938, when I was 18, I met Ray Harryhausen and went over to his house and saw all of his dinosaurs there in his garage that he was animating on 16-millimeter film. And we formed a friendship which has lasted forever. He was best man at my wedding 44 years ago, and we finally made a film together. We promised we would do that, you know. And finally, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms was made. Well, it's not a good film, but it was a beginning for two young men who were crazily in love with Willis O'Brien, King Kong, Fay Ray, and dinosaurs, huh? Well, in uh, your most recent novel, A Graveyard for Lunatics, mm -hmm. He's there, very thinly disguised. Well, and he took over the novel. When I started out writing it, he was not that important. He was a character that ambled through the book. You know, we got involved in various adventures. 
And then all of a sudden, when I finished the second draft, Ray sort of stepped forward and said, hey, I'm it, huh? I'm the I'm one of the centers of the novel. And I went back through and rewrote and added little sequences. And by God, he turned out to be the, you know, the prime murderer, actually. I called him and I told him, I said, how does this make you feel? <laughs> he said, I have nothing to say. We've been doing these Laurel and Hardy imitations for 50 years, so it's always a quote from Laurel and Hardy. These two books, Death is a Lonely Business and A Graveyard for Lunatics, they're murder mysteries of, of a sort. They're not serious detective novels. Detective people will tell you that. The murder mystery fans, the, the mystery writers of America ignore me. They don't want me in the field. They're jealous of me for coming in. Huh? But I had a wonderful time in spite of them. None of the mystery guilds have accepted any of my books because they're excellent books. I'm very proud of both of them. And the only reason they haven't been accepted is they don't want my competition. I'm not a mystery writer. The first of them, Death is a Lonely Business, struck me as being highly autobiographical and dealing your late teens or early 20s living in Venice. It sure is. Well, both books, people say, are you going to write your autobiography someday. I said, I don't have to. It's in Dandelion Wine, it's in uh, Death is a Lonely Business, and it's in Graveyard for Lunatics. Uh, most of the dialogue in the studio in Graveyard for Lunatics actually happened. I was at MGM for almost a year, 30 years ago. I wrote the narration for The King of Kings, so that's in the book. And my relationship with Saul Siegel, who uh, called me in and said, uh, I was working on the Martian Chronicles at the time, and predicted that when I'd handed in the script, I'd be fired, okay? And I was. But along the way, they said, we have no ending for the King of Kings. And I said, you have no ending? I said, have you tried the Bible? They said, well... And I said, what you want is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Ray, huh? So they said, yes, that's exactly it. So I uh, worked with Nicholas Ray. He was no help. He, he flew in for a few days from Europe. He owed money to the government here and had to get out fast, uh, income tax problems. So he gave me a copy of one of the Dead Sea Scrolls books, which didn't help me, you know. I needed someone like the director to say, here's, you know. I said, what the hell, I'll just go through the Old Testament and I will look at the scenes and I'll write the narration. And it was glorious, you know. I had reread the whole Old Testament for, oh God, 20, 30 years. I'd read Ecclesiastes. I'd read the Book of Ruth, things like that, but uh, it was glorious going through. And then I wrote the ending for the film, which they didn't have. But they didn't use my ending after I wrote it. It was too expensive. It's never been filmed, partly in the Book of John. And I think Mark, the second Last Supper, and then in other words, the Last Supper was not the final one. There was a, a food tasting after that on the shore of the sea, when the, uh, the disciples encounter the ghost of Christ and there's a bed of fish laid out on a bed of charcoal and he says, take of these fish and feed thy brethren and take of my message and move through the cities of the world and preach therein forgiveness of sin. Well, it's a beautiful scene, you know. It's a, a dawn scene with the sun coming up and the bed of coals, the sparks flying away like fireflies and Christ saying farewell, huh? But it's never been shot, never been on the screen. In uh, Graveyard for Lunatics, you have a character that's thinly disguised Fritz Lang, I guess. Yeah, yeah. 
the thinly disguised Hal is Fritz. <laughs> well, he used to call me on the phone. Hey, you stupid goddamn son of a bitch, you. I say, hello, Fritz. You stupid goddamn son of a bitch, you. What do you want? And then we'd start even, huh? There's a character who's who's only known as JC because he, all he's played is Jesus Christ. Is that fictional? <clears throat> it's two-thirds fictional. Uh, there were people wandering around Hollywood in those days. I'd see them every once in a while. Who played Christ on the screen? H.B. Uh, Warner was still alive. He appeared in Sunset Boulevard. Someone like John Carradine was always Christ-like to me, and he proved it in Blood and Sand. Huh? His death scene is crucifixion. Huh? So it's a combination of what I saw in Carradine and H.B. Warner and other crazies hanging around the studios. Dick Lupoff. Uh, one of the other scenes that I found most striking in Death is a Lonely Business was the commuting of the young Ray Bradbury or Ray Bradbury surrogate between Venice, downtown L.A., on the old red cars yeah. to visit a retired or semi-retired actress. We had a thousand miles of red cars around L.A., and we could go anywhere we wanted to go for 10 cents. Huh? I lived part-time in this tenement down at Temple and Figueroa with all these uh, Mexicans and some white trash. Is this also the origin of the wonderful ice cream suit? That's right. So uh, as a result of living in the tenement, uh, I used all the names of the real people, Gomez, Venezuel, Martinez. They're all in the play, and they're all in the short story, the ice cream suit. And uh, up on the second floor was this woman named Fanny Floriana, whose real name was Mabel Clark. Huh? And I used to go up and visit her, and she had uh, opera recordings, and she'd occasionally s sing for me. Huh? And she ate mayonnaise out of the jar with a big spoon. <laughs> and she weighed, oh God, I'd say at least 300 pounds. But she was very dear and special. And then when I moved away from the neighborhood, when I got married, I just never went back. The tenement got torn down. So I have all these memories of the tenement and the, the Hispanics, the, the Mexicans, plus Fanny Floriana. And they all went into the novel. So really, there's no reason ever to write an autobiography. How about that strange character who waits for signatures outside, who plays a major <laughs> role? Boy, that's really me. And he, I was really strange. Those are wonderful years. I hung around the studios from um, April 1934 when we arrived here. My parents let me run. They trusted me. They First of all, it was a different city then. No one ever got hurt. Uh, there were no drugs, there were no prostitutes, there was no crime. I mean, really. And I roller skated all around Hollywood from 12 noon until midnight. And here's a 14-year-old kid. Huh? So I got thousands of autographs and photographs. I have pictures of myself and Marlene Dietrich in front of Paramount, which was published in Life magazine last year, and George Burns in front of the Brown Derby. So I was underfoot. Uh, while I was shy in many ways, I was brassy in others. I... I went up to Luella Parsons outside of a rehearsal of uh, Lives of the Bengal Lancers, a Paramount film of 1934, and asked her to take me in. And she, she said, okay. So she took me in. Here's this bedraggled kid with his roller skates and sat me next to Gary Cooper and Richard Cromwell and Sir Guy Standing and uh, C. Aubrey Smith at a radio, uh, the Hollywood Hotel broadcast of that show. So I got to know her. I rode around town in her limousine with her chauffeur when I was 14. And when she found out, I got kicked out, of course. 
I'd made friends with the chauffeur. <laughs> you mentioned George Burns, and I believe your relationship with him was more than casual and take a photo. I went up to him with my friend Donald Harkins one day in the summer of 34, and in those days there were no audiences for broadcasts. That came a couple months later. And I said, Mr. Burns, will you take us into your broadcast? And again, Mr. Burns said, sure. So he took me and my friend Donald in, put us in the front row of what is now the Variety Arts Theater downtown in Figaro. And the curtain went up and George and Gracie did their broadcast for two boys in this empty theater. Huh? <laughs> and then we, I stayed in touch with him and I wrote scripts for the show, which he pretended to read. I'd turn them in every Wednesday night, and he said, oh boy, these are great, you know. And they only used one joke. I, I did, you know, dozens of scripts, and they finally used one of my jokes on one of their shows, and I was so proud. At the end of each show, they always had a, a snapper ending before they went off the air. It lasted 30 seconds. And my snapper ending, which they used in January or February 35, was, Oh my gosh, Gracie's fainted. Oh, Gracie, oh, this is terrible. Get a glass of water. Gracie, Gracie, here's some water. Say something, Gracie. Gracie, oh, please, please, sit up and say something. And she says, this is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Did you get a chance to talk to her at all? She was very shy. You know, I got to know her slightly. I brought my parents down to meet her. She was very kind, but she has never been social. She was never social. But George was terrific. 45, 50 years later, I, there, a long period went by, I never saw George again. And I was at a broadcast with Steven Spielberg about 12 years ago, giving him an award at the Coconut Grove. And I looked over in the corner, here's George Burns seated with some friends. And I stopped the whole show. I said, I gotta tell you, I wanna give my own award to George Burns tonight for being so kind to me when I was 14. When it was over, George Burns came running up to me and he said, was that you? Was that you? I remember you. And he embraced me for the first time in 50 years. Things do come around again. In the late 40s, you began having your stories collected. So I guess you, by that time, were becoming a success as a writer. <laughs> the word success means a lot of things. Uh, I think success is being loved. That's the important thing. And when people begin to love you, because certainly I had no money, the, the short stories I sold was sold for $10 a piece, $15, and when I was lucky, $22 to Weird Tales. They paid a penny a word, and when I asked for a raise to a penny and a half, it was big trouble, huh? They almost fired me on the spot. But all those stories are, are beautiful stories, almost all of them, and I didn't know what I was doing, thank God. Uh, I didn't know I was excellent, and I was just writing because I loved what I wrote. All those stories are still around. Huh? They're in the October Country. They're in Dark Carnival, my first book. They're on my series now, at least 20 of them huh? that I sold for $15 a piece. So I guess the success was in the excellence of the stories. Huh? That I was successful and didn't know it. And people finally started writing. Someone like Anthony Boucher, who put his imprimatur on me. I went to a convention when I was 26 years old science fiction convention, and I hadn't published my first book yet, but Robert Block showed up, and I heard his voice across the room say, where's Ray Bradbury? I want to meet him. Huh? That's the voice I remember forever, because the first time anyone ever asked for me. This is almost the period when you wrote the Martian Chronicles. Did you have any unified concept of that cycle of stories? It's not exactly a novel, but it works like a novel. 
I don't know if it's the right side of my brain, the left or the lop side, but in there somewhere, it knows what it's doing, so I don't have, have anything to do with it. I just open a valve and let it out. Huh? All those stories were written over a period of five or six years without my knowing they would be connected up someday. I was influenced by Winesburg, Ohio, by Sherwood Anderson, because I loved the book, which was not a novel. It's called a novel, but it isn't. It's a book of character sketches. So I made a note. I've got it put away somewhere. And I was going to write a book called Marsport Mars. And I listed a bunch of characters like Winesburg, Ohio. I said, someday I've got to do something as good as this. Huh? So that was the basic influence. I forgot all about it. Huh? Did all these stories, just brought the expeditions to Mars, let them out on the planet to see what would happen. I'm, I'm never in charge. I never know what I'm going to do. Finally, in 1949, my wife was pregnant. We had no money. We had $40 in the bank. I took the Greyhound bus to New York, which is a dreadful way to travel. Uh, four days and four nights turning into a ball of fungus, huh? And uh, stayed at the YMCA, $5 a week, and had meetings with various editors who all said, don't you have a novel? I said, I'm not a novelist. Probably never will be. They said, well, Goodbye. And uh, no one wanted to take any of my stories. Well, I had dinner finally the last couple of nights I was in New York with Walter Bradbury of Doubleday, no, no relation. And during supper, he said, well, don't you have a lot of Martian stories? I said, yes, I do. He says, well, can't you tie them together somehow and make them into the Martian Chronicles? He said, go back to the YMCA, type me out an outline tonight, and if I like it, I'll give you an advance tomorrow. So I spent half the night typing out an outline and uh, went back the next day. And he says, that's it. You get your advance, $700. He says, now, don't you have a second book? I said, yeah, more short stories. And he said, well, he looked at the list and on the list was the illustrated man. He says, isn't there some way of tying these together so it looks like it might be a novel? I said, well, what about the illustrated man? All of his illustrations come to life one by one, the stories. And that's a nice fancy. It's a nice notion. And he says, that's good. I'll give you another advance right now. So I got $1,400. Then all my other books, Dan Linewine, it was accruing at the same time. I didn't know it was turning into a novel. I wrote all these 20, 30 short stories. My murder mystery, Death is a Lonely Business, began 30 years ago, not long after I left Venice. I had some ideas about the canals and the tenement and what have you. But I had to let... It evolved in, in my intuitive self. Huh? The latest detective novel, Graveyards for Lunatics, is based on my seeing a man with a destroyed face going over to Europe on the Elizabeth II five years ago. And his face was so terribly destroyed that it haunted me. And I saw him at night seated with his uh, wife and daughter, laughing and drinking champagne and being happy. But every time I saw him, I burst into tears. I, you've never seen a face like this in your life. Like someone picked him up and shoved him into a furnace and let him, you know, burn and melt like wax. And so when I got to Paris, I had my portable battery-operated silent typewriter. And every night at midnight when my wife was asleep, I could type right next to her with no sound, completely quiet. And I did 150 pages in 10 nights of uh, Graveyard for Lunatics. 
without knowing where I was going to go. I didn't know who this man was, never found out, huh? And a year later, I finished the first draft, and I didn't read it the whole time. I never read anything as soon as I finish it. I don't want to know what I'm doing. I want to remain mysterious. And I read it at the end of the year. I said, it's okay. It needs a lot of work, but I'll, I'll do another draft. So this is the way I work. And when I was in Rome 13 years ago, I started a friendship with Federico Fellini. And I'd heard about his methods of making films. And one night I said, Federico, is it true that when you're shooting a film, you never look at rushes? He said, that's right. I said, why is that? He says, because I don't want to know what I'm doing. Huh? It's got to remain mysterious. And that provokes the characters to behave, to act, to give you gifts. Huh? If you know what you're doing, you cut them off. Huh? If you're in charge, you can't write a good book. It's got to be the characters in charge. And you get a lot of set them free and say, okay, kids, go play in the sandbox. So he makes films the same way I write novels. I trust my subconscious, and it always delivers. The first story of the Martian Chronicles, the first time I read it, I was probably 16 or 17. I stopped, put the book down, and said, wow, <laughs> Mars is heaven. Can you tell about how that idea came to you? Do you remember? No, all those early stories in that book were experiments. In other words, I just sat at the typewriter, got some characters talking, and Illa, uh, I guess the, the prime sentence, she says that she's had a dream of some sort. I don't know how far into the story it, it is, probably the first page somewhere. And then the husband says, what kind of dream? And she tells the dream. And he said, well, it's silly. You know, there are no people like that. And once that idea got firmly started, then the rest wrote itself. It's got to be a story of jealousy, doesn't it? The husband is jealous of the dream and suspects that it's real, that Earthmen may be coming. And we know, of course, that it is real. Huh? So all these stories wrote themselves. The Earthmen knocking on a door and winding up in the insane asylum. Well, I didn't know that was going to happen when I started the story. And uh, Moonbeach Still is Bright, that character is partly me and partly someone like, oh, there was an ecologist naturalist, a Joseph Wood Crutch or Crutch, I guess they pronounce it, who was writing, he, he wrote a wonderful book called The Modern Temper in 1944-45, and I still have that. He was a big influence on me. So Spender is a combination of Joseph Wood Crutch and myself. And you read the early Martian stories of Stanley G. Weinbaum by that time. Yeah, they never were that much of an influence. It's Edgar Rice Burroughs. My Mars is... There's a lot of it borrowed from Edgar Rice Burroughs. I came across a paperback edition of Fahrenheit 451 recently that had a little essay in the front about the expurgation and de-expurgation of that book. Yeah. Can you talk about that? They took out some words like, you know, God and goddamn, and my books don't have many swear words. I'm very careful about that. But they took out a few, and then some kids from some high school wrote me and said, hey, your book on... Uh, Censorship has been censored. I immediately got on the phone and called Ballantyne. Well, they hadn't done it. Someone in the junior department had done it. And I have fights all the time about this, and I get things changed. There's very little censorship, really, in our country. We're very, very lucky. We don't burn books. You've had contact with some of the great names of Hollywood. I'd like to just throw out a few of them and see what you might have to say about them. John Houston, who you work with on Moby Dick... 
Well, he was a very strange man and had a lot of trouble with John. He was always calling me yellow, you know, don't be yellow, Ray, don't be yellow. And uh, <laughs> that's enough of that. I was around him for seven months when I wrote Moby Dick. Very strange man, a very talented man, very unhappy man. Uh, the first day I went to work for him in Ireland, he made his wife cry in front of me. And I sat there at lunch and I thought, oh my God, this is my first day working for my hero, huh? We ended finally by being enemies because uh, he stole credit on Moby Dick away from me. Alfred Hitchcock. I liked him very much. He's a huge influence on my life, of course, starting when I was about 14 with his earliest films. And then I did nine shows for Hitchcock, half hours and hour shows. He had his hand in everything. You know, there was a lot of people thought he didn't, he wasn't in charge of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, but he was. And everything had to pass through him, all the short stories finally, and the directors had a wonderful relationship. Charles Lawton. Beautiful. I haven't said enough about him. He and Paul Gregory came into my life uh, back in 1955, I believe it was, and wanted me to do a stage play of Fahrenheit 451. Well, I did it, but I didn't know enough about stage writing, and they took me out to dinner one night and got me drunk and told me how bad the play was, which was a beautiful thing to do. So kind. And I went home with tears rolling down my cheeks because I so much wanted to work with Charles Lawton. A year later, he showed up at the house and uh, with Elsa and said, uh, we want you to write a science fiction opera for us, a little operetta. So I spent a couple of months at their home almost every day, which was terrific. We'd work uh, two or three hours, and then around four, we'd get out the martinis and sit and talk film history and stage history. And sometimes I'd be alone with Charlie, and he'd stand on his hearth, and he'd do scenes from Lear for me, or Macbeth, or Hamlet. And he turned me back on my own resources. He says, you're a poet, and you've got to write poetry, and you've got to write poetic plays. There are no American writers that write poetry. huh? Uh, even uh, uh, Eugene O'Neill, as, as much as uh, we think of him, it is not poetic prose. It, it's an enchanting, rhythmical, intuitive memory. They're memory plays, but they're not poetic, only on occasion. So he, uh, Charlie, encouraged me to, to write uh, poetic science fiction plays. And if he hadn't given me courage, it would never have happened. Now I've got all these plays. Lee Brackett. Not enough to be said. I met her when I was about 19. I think she was 22, 23. Her hair was uh, shorter than mine. Mine was longer than hers. We were an odd couple. No one quite figured this out. But I met her on the beach every Sunday at Muscle Beach from sometime in 1941 until 1946. I was best man at her wedding to Edmund Hamilton. He was another close friend. Uh, but she criticized my stories uh, 52 times a year, and I would lie on the beach and weep with envy at her beautiful prose. She wrote wonderful short stories and novels, and she tried to teach me, and it took a long time before I wrote anything worth reading. And then in 1946, when she got the job of writing The Big Sleep, with William Faulkner for Howard Hawks, she called me and said, I have a novella half finished. Will you finish it? So she gave me uh, Lorelei, the Red Mist, and I think she'd done 10,000 words on it, and I did 10,000. And you go back today and you can't tell where the, the fusion point is, huh? 
did uh, Sword of Rhiannon have any influence on your Martian stories? No. No, it's Burroughs again. And she was influenced by Burroughs. Very much so, yeah. Lorraine Day. I saw her for lunch last week. I don't see her very often. I was very poor. I was selling newspapers on a street corner. I went to New York for the first World Science Fiction Convention. And while I was there, I saw a notice in Loella Parsons' column that Lorraine Day was starting her own theater in the Mormon church. When I got home, I discovered it was only two blocks from my house. And I lived on 12th Street and Western. And I ran over the next Thursday night and confronted Lorraine Day with a lot of my lousy plays. Oh, God, she was very embarrassing. And she took a suspicious look at me. She eyed me, you know. And I said, you got to take me. I've told all my friends you did, you know. Well, you know, what a dumb thing to say, huh? But she accepted me into the group. And along the way, we uh, put on a musical called Lame Brains and Daffodils. I was one of the seven dwarfs in there, and I did my Roosevelt imitations and W.C. Fields and what have you. It was all crazy and silly and fun. And along the way, uh, her dialogue needed fixing, so I suggested all these jokes. Well, I drove her nuts, you know. But the jokes were good enough, she had to put them in. And I'm sure that half the time she hated me, and half the time thought maybe I was okay. So when I saw her the other day, we talked about all this, and she agreed. It was pretty rough having me around. I'd like you to talk briefly about a couple of science fiction writers that you've known, two in particular, Isaac Asimov and Robert Heinlein. Well, Heinlein was my teacher, and when I belonged to the Science Fantasy Society down at Clifton's Cafeteria, where we met every Thursday night in 1939, he came and joined the group at the very moment he published his first short story. And we became friends, and I was invited up to his house on occasion to watch him typing, and that was a magic moment, watching a, an established author type. Huh? He let me read some of his stories ahead while he was writing them. He encouraged me, which is very important. Uh, he was, uh, I think, a, a huge influence on the history of science fiction. He was one of the new writers who wrote about human beings. So a good influence on me, and maybe I wouldn't have started writing human science fiction stories as early as I did if I hadn't known Heinlein. And Asimov? We met when we were both uh, 19 years old in New York City. He had just sold his first short stories to Campbell. I sold nothing. Uh, we never got to know each other. I, we've done a few broadcasts together over the years. But he was never an influence the way Heinlein was. One other name that I would like to hit you with, Christopher Isherwood. Well, that was a turning point and a, a fluke, you know, God bless. I went to a uh, lecture at SC in uh, early 1950. I, I gave my first lecture down there to an English class. And there was a banquet for Isherwood, and they asked me to come when I was introduced to him and chatted with him for a moment. And six months later... Martian Chronicles was published. I was in a bookstore in Santa Monica, and Isherwood walked in. And I said, oh, my God, you know, I grabbed a copy of my book, signed it, and gave it to him. And his face fell. And I, I could just see what he was thinking. Oh, God, one more book. And, oh, boy, oh, boy. Three days later, I got a phone call. It was Isherwood. And he says, do you know what you've done? I said, well, what have I done? He, says, he said, you've written one of the great books. And I'm going to review it. I've just been given the job of reviewing for Tomorrow Magazine, and it'll be my first review. So up till that point, all the intellectuals, of course, didn't want to have anything to do with me. And when Isherwood said I was okay, and it was a huge article in Tomorrow, 
uh, changed my life, turned my life completely around. And then he introduced me to Huxley and to Gerald Hurd. And I was tongue-tied half the time because what do you say to Aldous Huxley? You know, I'd read everything of his. A huge turning point in my life. Ray Bradbury, what's coming up now for you? You've got a TV series? Well, I'm writing uh, 24 new scripts, uh, almost finished them for my series on TV. We're shooting them in New Zealand. We've just finished eight in, uh, in Canada. But my latest book is a book called Yestermorrow, a book on architecture and city planning and uh, malls and museums and Disney projects. I've worked on a a ride uh, which opens in Disney, uh, Euro Disney in April in, near Paris. So I want to do more architectural writing. My first article on city uh, design turned into the Glendale Galleria over here 20 years ago. The architect who built it saw my article and built his mall on my plan and came and told me. Uh, the next uh, year he took me to lunch and says, how do you like your mall? And I said, what do you mean? He says, that's yours. That's your article. I said, am I allowed to say that? He said, sure. I said, I don't want any money. I just want the right to say I'm your papa, huh? So I've been saying I'm his papa. And then I became part of the group. And I had consulting input on Horton Plaza in San Diego and the West Side Pavilion over here on Pico Boulevard. And I, I write essays. When I sit with an architect or the Disney people, then I go write an essay to to uh, give the essence of the project. And the essence of Horton Plaza is the, uh, the essence of lostness. We travel for architecture, for romance, and to get lost. Huh? There's nothing more wonderful than being in, standing in the middle of Paris and not knowing where the hell you are. It's beautiful. And being safe. Huh? I gave them the concept of lostness, and then they built something around it before it melted. And you have new novels coming out soon? Yeah, my new novel... Green Shadows, White Whale, uh, two-thirds Ireland, and, and one-third John Houston. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.